We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, just by recap and introduction, just to kind of give you a bit of a heads up as to where we've been and where we're going. In order to understand where we're going, you've got to understand where we've we've been in Ephesians. Um, Paul, in the first three chapters, has kind of unpacked this theology, this background understanding of what's most important for all of us. And now, for the rest of the book, what he's going to do, he's going to say, because of those things in those first three chapters, this is the difference it should make in your life. This is the way you should live. This is what it should look like. And so, as you remember back in the past chapters, in, in chapter one, you get this beautiful unpacking by Paul of all the blessings we have in Jesus Christ. He uses the phrase, in him, over and over and over again. And this is what you have in Christ. This is what you have in Christ. You have this redemption. You have forgiveness. You are now seen as holy and blameless. You have been given this, this inheritance. You look forward to the day where you stand before Jesus and all things are summed up in Jesus and all things are made new and all things are made right. And then he continues into chapter two and says, there used to be this, this, this tension um, between two groups of people. And because of Jesus, he has removed that tension. He has torn down the wall. And now instead of judging each other based on the externals, instead of looking at your ethnicity, your language, your background, your history, your finances, your education, instead of looking at any of those things, now what we see each other as is new creatures in Jesus Christ. And so where two groups stood, now there's just one. And, and then, then what he's doing, he's taking all of those, those individuals who've experienced salvation in him, and he's bringing them together in this incredible organism called the church. The church, which is this dysfunctional group of people who sit there staring at me when I talk to them. It's this group of people from a varied um, backgrounds and all kinds of differences exist in their lives and he's bringing them together and in them coming together and demonstrating um, in, in their actions, in their language, the, the way they serve one another with the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. They use their gifts to, to equip each other and be equipped and then do the work of the ministry, which is the declaration of the good news of Jesus Christ throughout the community. And the, the watching principalities, the angels and demons are looking like, wow, that thing's amazing. God's so smart that he would do that. And then the watching world looks at the church and goes, Unbelievable! Right? That's how the world looks at us. Of course, then you show up in church and somebody takes your parking spot. Or spills your coffee when they're trying to shake your hand. Or is wearing the same thing as you are. You show up in church and you can't make eye contact. No, no, no. Instead, what you're going to do is leave during the last song so you can slash their tires. <laughs> the church is jacked up. Yeah? I know. I'm a part of it. Love to say our work, but no, I'm a part of it. And that's part of the problem. So it might be true that God's gotten rid of the hostility between us from the externals. And he's made peace between us. But you wouldn't know it all the time by the way that we act. And so what Paul does today, he says there's two reasons that can be true. One reason is because um, you're off in your beliefs. And the second reason is you're off in your actions. 
And so I'm going to do something a little different. Um, I'm going to start in verse 4, go 4 through 6, and then I'm going to go back to verse 1 and do 1 through 3. In verse 4 through 6, we see Paul trying to hammer home right beliefs so that these people would understand the foundation of who they are and where they stand. And he says, you've got to understand, verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling. He says, you've got to understand the church is not two distinct or three distinct or 150 distinct people groups. The church is one body. And it can meet in many different places. It can speak a lot of different languages. Um, they can use different music in their worship services. Some, some, some may clap, right? Some may clap. Some may hear something they like and clap. And I always feel bad for the two of you that that's you, right? Some may shout amen or hallelujah or uh, we used to have somebody here, preach it, preacher. I am. <laughs> some may get in service and be much more somber in their approach, quiet. I love you introverts, that's you, it's cool. Some may dance. We have a dance crew in the back. They used to be over there. They've moved corners today. If you've seen the Ostrowski girls dance, they can dance. Some use banners or tambourines. If you've never been in a church service with tambourines, you have not lived. I had a friend who, uh, <laughs> let's, I'll keep it real general, pastor at a church, and he's like, man, we have people who love to play the tambourine during worship, and they'd run around and be like, ah. And he goes, but, but they'd go months and never do anything and just be quiet and be like, oh, good, they're finally done. He goes, then we'd have somebody special or a guest in, and they'd find out. And they'd be coming up and down the aisle like, hey, oh, so next week, bring your tambourines. But all those things are external. And if they are in Jesus Christ, they're part of a single body that you and I are part of. And that single body, that church is made one because of, verse 4, the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has done for us, we talked about in chapter 1, is that he has baptized us into the family of God. He is the one who makes us that one body. He, at the moment of salvation, brings us into the very family of God, so we are all one family. We're one body, we are one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling. God is going to fulfill his promises, and we all have that same hope. He's not going to fulfill all your wishes. He's not a genie. But he's going to fulfill his promises. He's going to fulfill this great hope that rests out there. And that hope comes as a result of the perfect righteousness and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. What he's talking about when he says we have that one hope, he's talking about that day where we will stand shoulder to shoulder with people from every nation, from every denomination, from every age in history. And the redemption of Jesus Christ will be on full display and will begin to receive the immeasurable riches of his grace as all things are wrapped up in Jesus Christ. That's our hope. And so if you are in him, we're one body. There's one spirit. There's one hope. Verse 5, one Lord. It's a term of authority. And it's Jesus. It's not a pastor. It's not a denominational leader. 
Then I'm a famous speaker. The authority is Jesus and Jesus alone. The problem comes, and I don't want to get into all the problems now. I'll do that a little later, but let me, this is important, I think. The problem comes when we begin to align ourselves under different authorities. And so what, what ends up happening is I'm going to listen to him and what he says, what, what, what that preacher says, what that pastor says, what that denominational leader says, what that theologian says. He's going to carry the day. So I'm going to align myself under him. And, and we, we, we and it's many good people. The problem is, is that our eyes are supposed to be focused here. That should be peripheral. The problem is we do this and we make Jesus peripheral. And what that can lead to is, do you remember the old game um, Telephone? You remember that game, right? We could play like the biggest game of telephone ever here. By the time we were done, we'd be like, what? But, but you'd be like, hey, the yellow canary went into the mine and everything was great. And by the time you get to the end, it's like, will you marry me? Because I have a grape. And it's like, what? But the problem is, is that when you're no longer listening to the primary source, when you're no longer looking at your one focus, when you're not, no longer aligning yourself under the single authority that is Jesus and Jesus alone, and instead you've made him your, your, your periphery, you slowly start to drift off. Paul says, listen, we have one authority. Don't get that wrong. It's Jesus. We have one faith. Now, some of you who are guests with us this morning, I'm so glad you are here. Um, I try not to ever, in any message that I preach, assume the gospel. I don't want you to come here and think, well, and, and, and I don't want to ever get to the place where I'm like, well, they must know about Jesus. That's not the point, right? My job is to tell you the gospel. Literally, that's my job. And when he says here, one faith, I think sometimes you can hear that as somebody who's not in Jesus, who's not a follower of Jesus, who's just interested or maybe is testing religions or some different things. And what you can hear is, that is so narrow-minded, right? For a preacher to get up like I'm about to do and tell you this, this is the truth, from God's word to your ears. God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, who became man, who died for your salvation and, and, and took the penalty of your wrath upon himself. He was buried in a tomb, and three days later, he was risen from the grave, and he lives forever. And if you put your faith in him through grace, you can experience salvation in Jesus and Jesus alone. One faith. You can't trust yourself. You can't trust the nicest person living in your neighborhood. You can't trust any other religious leader. They will all die and stay in their tombs. But Jesus alone is, is the source of our salvation. Jesus alone is the one you can trust for your salvation. So is that narrow-minded? Yes. I admit it. It's also narrow-minded for the doctor to look at you and tell you it's cancer. <gasps> I mean, can't we be open to what this might be? Maybe it's like X-Men and I'm just developing this new mutation that's going to be beneficial. It's cancer. We must treat it or it will kill you. Is that narrow-minded? Yes. Should it be? 100%. You're mean. I try not to be. I'm kind of jolly, actually. But I have, I can be jolly. I was going to say I have jolly. I have jolly. I have joy. Because I know for a fact that one day, I'm going to look eyeball to eyeball with Jesus Christ. And though I may not serve him perfectly here, I will spend eternity with him enjoying his presence. One faith. And it doesn't matter where you live, what church you attend, if you are in Jesus Christ, you have that same 
We have one Lord, one faith, and then one baptism. One baptism. I mean, come on. You don't need to go to church all your life to know there's a lot of different ways of baptism. Not just one baptism. I mean, you've got aspersion, which is sprinkling. You've got effusion, which is pouring, which is kind of like waterboarding. <laughs> Sorry. That's my new illustration, I guess. Um, immersion. That's what we practice. But even in immersion, there's three different types of immersion. You know that, right? I, I've been at all three. Um, two of them, one of them, I'm, I think, is, is it's just practical. But uh, we go like this. Hold your nose, grab your elbow, back your head, bloop, you're backwards, and you're up. There you go. That's one style of immersion. Another style of immersion that none of you should ever trust me with, neither of these ones actually is, no, instead what I do is you put your hands in front of you, I hold your elbow, and you go face first. Now, that might be more enjoyable. And the third type of immersion is the triple dunk. Now, for that one, I would have to work out more. That's like down one and two and three. So one baptism, I mean, that's like, that's five different kinds of baptism right there. No, no, what he's talking about is what's happening in actuality. Water baptism is just the outward expression of something that's already happened, okay? After accepting God's invitation to us in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit baptizes us into the family of God. The Holy Spirit makes us one with all other believers. So, so again, that regardless of, of, of background, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of anything, if you are in Jesus Christ, you've been baptized into the family of God. And we have that in common. He finishes by saying, we have one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. We are his children. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are co-heirs with not just Jesus, but with one another. So, so you are our brothers and sisters with people from all around the world. You are brothers and sisters in Christ with people from all across history. And one day, we'll unite with, with believers who are, are from large churches and small churches. We'll, we'll get together with with believers who are well-known or completely obscure. We'll get together with, with believers who have lived their lives in countries that are free and countries that aren't free. We will get together for all of eternity with believers who have never known persecution and those who were martyred because we're in him. And so what Paul's saying is, everything you have been given in Jesus Christ you are made one with other believers. So if that's true, why is there, is there such disunity among Christians? Why is there such tension? Let me start with the, uh, I'll call this easy, but this is not easy. The, the, the practical question, so, 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 why does Christianity have so many denominations? Um, First, understand what I'm talking about when I talk about denominations in this context. I'm not talking about Jehovah's Witnesses or, or, or Mormons. Those are cults who deny important aspects of what the Bible says about who Jesus is. That's not a denomination. Okay. Um, a denomination, I'm not talking about Islam, Hinduism, uh, Buddhism. Those are world religions that are, are not teaching the truth about who Jesus is. Well, I'm going to give a very overgeneralized definition of denominations. Denominations are a group of Christians who recognize and hold to specific core beliefs within Christianity. So, so let me, what are the core beliefs? And I think that's, that's where things can get a little wishy-washy, okay? And so I, I know, again, I'm going to overgeneralize this, and all of these things can be 
um, applied in many different ways. They can get bigger, they can get smaller, all of those things. But I think this, at its core, are the fundamental beliefs of Christianity. First, the inerrancy of Scripture. The truth that this is God's Word, and it is in all points true and accurate. This comes from Him to us. It is inerrant. So the inerrancy of Scripture. The second one is one God in three persons. The, the third one is the humanity and deity of Jesus Christ. You can't leave one out. Jesus is just as much human as he was divine. He is human and and deity of Jesus Christ. And then the literal virgin birth, perfect life, death, burial, resurrection, and return of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's like me putting 42 in one point. but, But the literal nature of those things. And then finally, the necessity of substitutionary atonement for salvation. The fact that Jesus Christ came and took our penalty. That's the, 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 the atonement and the fact that he took our place. That's the substitutionary aspect of it. And so, so just again, recap very quickly. Inerrancy of scripture, one God in three persons, the humanity and divinity of Jesus Christ, the literal virgin birth, perfect life, death, burial, resurrection, and return of Jesus Christ, and the necessity of the substitutionary atonement. So, so, so those are the basic cores. And what you had with denominations back in the 16th century, right? You had a number of people um, in the Protestant Reformation, trying to reform the Roman Catholic Church. And, and as they did that, there were four major denominations that kind of came out of that almost immediately. You had Lutherans, uh, you had Reformed, you had Anabaptists, and you had Anglicans. And then from there, you've got everything else. It just keeps coming. Presbyterians, Brethren, Methodist, non-denominational. Because we're not very creative, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but each denomination has a slightly different doctrine or emphasis than the other ones do so, that focus on things like mode of baptism, how they baptize people, right? One, two, three, or face first, um, or sprinkling or pouring. Um, some denominations emphasize the sovereignty of God over the free will of man, or vice versa uh, within salvation. You've got uh, their stance on the future of Israel or the future of the church, the role of women in church leadership. You've got um, the, the timing of the return of Jesus Christ, the, 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 the um, use of sign gifts in uh, the modern era. You've got all these. Some of them actually just come down to types of worship. Some of them come down to, so we have a regulative principle, a normative principle. We have contemporary. We've got traditional. We've got liturgical. We've got high church. We've got no music. We have church services that include structured prayer time and corporate prayer time as you recite things back or reciting of creeds and all of those different things. But the point is this. In all of those denominations, the question isn't, is Jesus really Lord? But instead, there's secondary things. Where <laughs> there's an honest difference of opinion between godly, flawed people who are trying to honor God by, 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 by keeping doctrinal purity according to their consciousness and the understanding of his word. They're godly people, but like all people, they ain't perfect. And so you have all of these denominations come up. So, so what really matters, and let me be really clear on this, it doesn't matter the denominational affiliation that you hold. What matters is where you stand on the essentials of the faith. Because I'm going to tell you right now, being a Baptist doesn't get you into heaven. Being a Methodist doesn't get you into heaven. Being a non-denominational does not get you into heaven. 
What gets you into heaven, into heaven is Jesus Christ. So, so, so as believers, we need to be of one mind on the essentials of the faith. But beyond that, there's this great deal of, of latitude. And that's what causes so many, of, um, so many flavors of Christianity to kind of to pop up. Now, let's get back to, to Paul's immediate context. That the church is made up of so many different people. And he's making sure that they understand one very important point, And it's the point that Uniontown Bible Church, you must understand this morning. The body of Christ, the family of God, is not made up of people who look like you, sound like you, think like you do. The body of Christ isn't made up of people who like the same things you do and dislike the same things you do, that agree in totality with you. The body of Christ is made up of everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Okay? The gospel of salvation by grace through faith unites believers despite any other differences. And there's a lot of other differences. So what Paul says is there should be an uncommon unity among you as believers. He's not saying there's potential for unity. You should, all, you should all be able to get along. He's saying that unity already exists because it's based on what God has accomplished through Jesus Christ. And because of what God has accomplished through Jesus Christ, we have the same Savior. We have the same Holy Spirit. We have a common hope, a common faith, a common baptism that, that unites us. So, so now, if the church is supposed to be the visible witness of God's wisdom, right? If, if the church is supposed to be a people from every culture, every nation, every language, every ethnicity, rising together in that unity to worship God with our entire being and worship God with our entire life, then why are there such problems between believers? There's plenty of problems, aren't there? I mean, think about it. You got, you got What Bible version do you use? Oh, that one's not very good. How have you chosen to educate your children? Homeschool, public school, private school? Or have you just decided, ah, leave them to the wolves, they'll be fine? What worship style are those drums? Did you get the vaccine? You didn't get the vaccine? Should we mandate these things? Who'd you vote for? How could you vote for them? So don't, don't misunderstand. We can have different stands on a lot of those things. The problem is when we allow those opinions to become what we judge other believers for. And what we do is we sabotage the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. Why? Because we have been sucked into the vortex of using our own mirrors to define the right standard. We really like what we like. And so what happens is then we define right and wrong based on what we like. And Paul says in verse one, therefore, because of the truth of everything that he has taught that you have of unity in Jesus Christ, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received. The reason we have so many problems between believers is because we are not walking worthy. 
He says, I urge you, I beg you, I appeal to you. That word urge is in the emphasized position in the Greek grammar. I urge you to live in a way that is worthy. That word worthy means equal weight, equal weight. So, so think about the scale, right? And you get the balance with the scale and you put something heavy on there and it goes, Roof! and then you have to balance it out, right? What Paul is saying is what I want you to do is here is your calling And now what I want you to do is live a life that is equal-weighted to the calling you have been given. Now, in order to do that, you've got to understand what the calling is, right? The calling is explained to us in chapter 1, and yet again, it's the gospel. You were separated from God in your sin. You couldn't do anything about it on your own. He tells us in chapter 2 that you were patterning your lives after the prince of the power of the air, after Satan himself. You were patterning your lives after the world around you. You were patterning your lives after your own flesh. You You were children of wrath. The only thing you had to look forward to was the very judgment of God. You were dead in your sins and in your trespasses. The calling that Paul is talking about was that incredible invitation that God has extended to you through Jesus Christ. And if you've accepted that invitation, then what he has done is he's taken you from a dead man and he's made you alive. He's seated you in the high places. He's given you something to look forward to, the hope of eternity and the riches of his grace. That calling is something he extended to you, that invitation he extended to you, not because you were so awesome, but because he saw you as a rebel who needed pardon. And in his grace and in his mercy... He extended it to you. How overwhelming is that? Old old hymn, um, How Can It Be? That God would love a soul like me. How, How can it be? And when you wrestle and grasp the understanding of that calling, Paul says, now, walk worthy of that, would you? How? How do you walk worthy of such a calling? I'm glad you asked. Paul tells us, starting in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with humility. That doesn't mean just being shy. This is refusing to insist on your own rights. It's, it's putting the, the interests of others before your own. It's, and and pardon me, but I think this is important, it's shutting up long enough to listen to other people even if you disagree. See, that's where a lot of the disunity comes from, is we're so busy covering our own tracks, making our own points known, making sure that we don't take a notch down in anybody's eyes, we've got to stay up here on top of everybody, that instead of just, just closing it long enough to listen and demonstrate a little humility, We create the friction that the world is watching in the church today. Gentleness. Gentleness is domesticated strength. Domesticated strength. Excuse me. It doesn't mean you don't have the strength or the power. It means that you restrain it for the good of another person. Uh, The best picture of this that I've used before is, is me wrestling with my children when they were little. Don't wrestle with them anymore. They can beat me. When they were little, I used to be able to take all four at once. Um, but, but there were times it'd be like mono a mono. It's like, all right, let's go. Let's wrestle. Let's wrestle. Now I was, I mean, <laughs> it sounds funny for me that I was huge. I mean, compared to them, 
I'm like Goliath. And there's this little dude like, I got you, man. And so we're going at it, right? And, and if I was to not demonstrate meekness, it'd be like, okay, come on, come on, come on. Bam! And then he's crying, and mom's not happy. There's all kinds of drama. <laughs> but meekness is understanding the strength that you have and just being like, oh, almost got me. Oh, you got away. I can't believe you got away. It's domesticated strength. It's limiting your strength, restraining your strength for the good of another person. That means in an argument or a discussion or a disagreement, you could absolutely nuke somebody. but instead you speak truth in love. It's the merciful execution of justice on behalf of people who have no voice. That's the other definition of this word. The, the, the merciful execution of justice on behalf of people who have no voice. It's using your voice to take care of the little guy. It's using your strength for the good of somebody else instead of yourself. Imagine if we started taking the gifts that God had given us and instead of using them to bolster our own standing or to make much of ourselves, instead we turned it on five other people to try to get them bolstered and, and to get them the attention. Imagine if that happened. That's meekness. Humility, gentleness, meekness. With patience, it's our favorite word. Patience is emotional calm in the face of provocation. Or long-suffering towards people who aggravate you. What patience really is, is recognizing in other people what other people certainly saw in you at some point. Spiritual growth and maturity take time. You know, we're all a work in progress. So be patient with one another. But he doesn't stop with just patience. He throws this one in. And I love Paul. I love the Bible. Because he just comes out and says it. With patience, bearing with one another in love. You know what that means? It's putting up with people who drive you nuts. Paul's like, they drive you crazy? Yeah, me too. Buckle up, you'll be fine. Make allowance for the faults of other people. Because, hey, you're standing before God because of grace, not because of anything you've done on your own. And he continues, make every effort to keep the unity. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That means it takes work, folks. Why is this so important? Well, Paul's being real. There's going to be tensions and, and real aggravations. And, um, we're, we're not involved in relationships in some weird dream world right, where everybody skips around and eats lollipops and sees rainbows and rides their unicorn. We're in a world of sideways glances, sarcastic comments, passive aggressiveness. And Paul says, in that world, it's going to require every ounce of energy to maintain unity with one another in Christ. And when you disagree with something, with another believer or follower of Jesus, maybe even something that you're passionate about, walking worthy doesn't look like blowing up on them on social media. 
Walking worthy does not look like talking about them to other people. Walking worthy doesn't even look like giving them the silent treatment. It means talking to them with honor, with respect, and with love. Because we understand the grace we've experienced. And we've got to work to get our lives to be equal weight with this calling because the world is watching and what they should see aren't a bunch of fakes. What they should see is followers of Jesus Christ hanging on with everything they got, trying to make the most of each situation, doing the hard, right things so that God gets the glory. Sounds easy, doesn't it? That's why I love Paul closing that chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. It is hard. But we're not doing it alone. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that in it we we find the instructions that you would have for us, your goal for us, your desire for us as your people, as your church. Father, I pray that we would live lives of sacrifice for you. God, I pray that you would help us with humility and gentleness and patience, that you would help us as we try to bear with one another in love, that we would work to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace as your church during these days. God, I pray that which is clear in your word, that we wouldn't compromise on it, But Father, that we would be more gracious and humble in our approach to other differences. Help us in our disagreements. God, I pray you'd help us love one another. Pray that you would give us a spirit of humility and affection and gentleness. Lord, help us to bear with one another. Help us to assume the best in one another. (laughs) And then I pray out of that there would be an unexplained unexpected unity in your church in the middle of this this toxic, divisive climate in our country. May they see Jesus Christ. May we lift you high and make much of you instead of fighting for our own ground. God, we know that you are the King of kings. You're the Lord of lords. We pray in your name, Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church. Amen.